I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, a ticking timetable. Top White House officials press Israeli forces on the rising death toll of Gaza civilians. When and how would the bloodshed end? Tension in the Senate. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pumps the brakes on holiday plans over a looming border deal. We have the latest. The power of healing. Why the Vatican encourages single mothers to receive the Eucharist after confession. And a preview of a beloved Christmas concert at the Basilica of the National Shrine. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, the war between Israel and Hamas and a stunning announcement. The IDF says Israeli troops mistakenly killed three Israeli hostages during its ground operation in the Gaza Strip. The army's chief spokesman said forces found the hostages and erroneously identified them as a threat. He said it was not clear if they had escaped their captors or been abandoned. Also today, according to the news agency Al Jazeera, an Israeli attack injured its chief correspondent in Gaza and killed his cameraman. Al Jazeera claims the cameraman died after medical teams were prevented by Israeli forces from immediately reaching him. The correspondent who was injured lost his family in October after they were all killed in an Israeli airstrike on a refugee camp in central Gaza. Our President Joe Biden's top national security advisor reaffirmed today the United States stands with Israel. Jake Sullivan, in his second visit to Israel since the October 7th terror attacks by Hamas, met with Israeli leaders discussing a timetable for winding down the intensive combat phase of the war. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, good evening to you tonight. The U.S. and Israel agree the overall fight against Hamas will not be ending anytime soon. In fact, Jake Sullivan said today Israel made clear from the beginning of its campaign that the war would proceed in phases. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan meeting with Israeli President Isaac Herzog and as plumes of smoke drifted in the sky over the Gaza Strip, growing American unease about the mounting death toll. Sullivan, in a news briefing, saying the fight will take months. This fight against Hamas, a deeply intent, entrenched terrorist group in Gaza, is going to take time. Sullivan also said the war is now in the middle of a high-intensity phase, adding... There will be a transition to another phase of this war, one that is focused uh, in more precise ways on targeting the leadership and uh, on intelligence-driven operations. Also new today, an Israeli senior advisor says Israel will destroy Hamas's capability to inflict pain and murder and end their rule of the Gaza Strip. Israelis simply refuse to live next to this enclave, this terrorist-controlled enclave on our southern border, in constant fear of people terrorists crossing the southern frontier and butchering our children. No. Just today in Jerusalem, an air raid warning. Israel's anti-missile system attempting to intercept a rocket barrage. Sullivan also met today with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah to discuss post-war scenarios for Gaza. And Sullivan praised Israel's decision to open its border crossing at Karem Shalom. It'll provide another path for humanitarian assistance to flow into Gaza. 
Sullivan writing in a statement, we welcome this significant step, and we hope that this new opening will ease congestion and help facilitate the delivery of life-saving assistance to those who need it urgently. And more now on that meeting between Sullivan and Mahmoud Abbas. A statement released by the White House says the two leaders, quote, discussed efforts to promote stability in the West Bank. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Of our analysis on the ever-evolving situation in the Middle East, we turn now to Dr. Bianca Adair, Director of Intelligence Studies at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Adair, great to be with you again. Uh, earlier today, two cargo ships in the Red Sea were targeted by missile strikes from Houthi rebels who support Hamas. Uh, this is the latest attack on the foreign cargo ships since Israel-Hamas war before it began. Bianca, tell us more about the Houthis and... Why attack these ships? I mean, what is their goal here? Thank you. First and foremost, thank you very much for being able to talk with you tonight. The situation with the Houthis is a pretty serious one, in part because the Houthis act and operate at the behest of Iran. And the fact that the Houthis are conducting these types of attacks, especially against shipping vessels, this is a warning to the United States and all of our allies. There are more than 23,000 ships that go through the Red Sea in that Babel Mandeb area, which is where the Houthis are attempting uh, to take control. And the Iranian defense minister just yesterday defied the United States, working in coalition with our allies to stop what the Houthis are doing. The Houthis themselves do not have uh, any capacity to make weapons or to conduct the types of attacks that they are. They have been emboldened by Iran and trained and equipped by the Iranian uh, or the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. What the Houthis are doing is a significant threat to the U.S., U.S. interests and, frankly, global interests with respect to the Red Sea. Uh, something else I want to talk about, an uh, incident that happened on Thursday in Europe. Police in Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands uh, made a number of arrests in what is being described as an alleged Hamas-linked terror plot targeting Jews and Jewish institutions over there. What more do we know about this, and what does this all signal? Yeah, this was, uh, in and of itself, surprising. The number one reason why it's surprising is Hamas is not known as a global terrorist organization. These arrests that occurred are now associated specifically those in Germany and the Netherlands, uh, specifically attributed to Hamas. And then, of course, there are questionable arrests and uh, ongoing investigations in Denmark. And the question is whether or not all of those are related. But Hamas is not known as a global terrorist organization. They're known as what we would consider a local or regional a terrorist organization, normally specifically focused on Israel. So the fact that Hamas uh, decided to begin to action what apparently was a pre-planned approach, either in Germany or in the Netherlands against Jewish targets, is another signal that we have even a growing problem with Hamas. Specifically, Hamas coordinates very closely with Hezbollah. And of course, both Hamas and Hezbollah are trained and equipped by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, that in and of itself shows, again, as in the case with the Houthis, you have Iranian fingerprints all over all of this. For Hamas, though, to begin to reach out and act a little bit more like Hezbollah 
we now have to be concerned as well, not just with our own interests in Europe, but also in the United States. Hamas has a reach and a network that is connected to its charitable organizations and activities that had previously been considered legal as long as they were not directly touching on uh, Hamas and its military wing in Europe and even in the United States. This is a signal that we should be very concerned, uh, not unlike what the FBI director has been repeating over the last month and a half, that there is a significant terrorist concern. And thankfully, the Germans were able to get ahead of this type of an attack with the warning that there may be others being planned. The other piece of this that is heartening, the evidence or whatever the, the trigger for these investigations, at least in one of the cases, appears to have come from Israel. So that's helpful for us to know that the Israelis are working very closely with all of their allies in the Europe, Europe and the United States, uh, without a doubt. That helps because that may mean that there are at least breadcrumbs that can be picked up and tracked for investigations to prevent terrorist attacks from happening. Well, Dr. Adair, very important conversation. Thank you so much for weighing in and sharing your expertise with us. We always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, the holiday vacation is on hold, at least for the U.S. Senate. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is delaying the break for a week as Republicans, Democrats, and the White House continue to work on an aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. It is a compromise that must include policy changes at the southern border. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the latest. Eric. Good evening, Tracy. Yes, the big question right now is, can these lawmakers actually get this done? As I've been reporting earlier this week, uh, talks are going nowhere. Senate lawmakers were supposed to start their holiday break today, but the battle rages on over border policy changes. Republicans tell me that America cannot keep letting tens of thousands of unvetted illegal migrants enter the country each and every day. But Democrats, they tell me that they don't want any Trump-era policies back in place. Over the last few days, negotiations on a path forward to getting national security supplemental done have made good progress. As I've said, if we believe something is important and urgent, we should stay and get the job done. Senator Kirsten Sinema, one of the negotiators, says hopes for a deal are rising because the White House is now engaged in the talks. The fact that the White House is fully engaged in the negotiations has definitely made a difference. It's communicated to Senate Republicans that this is serious and that we've got a deal in the future. Republicans say they will only back a package that has meaningful border policy changes, like former President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. The first thing you need to do to stop the flow or slow it down is make sure that people waiting for the asylum hearing are not released into the country because that incentivizes people to come because once they get released, the belief is you're never going to go back. Stop paroling people en masse. You got people pouring across that border every day, some of whom are on the terrorist watch list. This problem has to be solved. It's got to be solved now. And the Democrats need to get serious about working with us to make that happen. Democrats claim Republicans' hard line on border policy is not the answer. When it's time for us to evaluate it, it has to be consistent with two principles. One, America is a nation of immigrants. That gives us a competitive 
advantage over China and everyone else. And two, we are a nation anchored in the rule of law. Republicans tell me any agreement will take compromise and time. There is nothing that has been agreed to. There is not a pathway moving forward quickly. The House is adjourning for Christmas, so this is going to be an issue for the new year. GOP senators tell me Senator Schumer's optimism is unrealistic. Republicans say that they're not going to agree to any framework. They want to actually see a bill, legislative text, before they agree on anything. And to complicate matters, as you heard, House lawmakers have left town yesterday and won't be back for three weeks. They will have to be called back if an agreement is reached. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN, News Nightly. Well, the U.S. isn't the only country wavering on its financial commitment to Ukraine. At the end of a two-day summit, European Union leaders failed to agree on an aid package for Ukraine. The Hungarian prime minister vetoed the measure even after the bloc agreed to open membership negotiations with the war-torn country. But the European Council president says he is confident that they will come to an agreement about funding at a special summit in January. On new details tonight in the murder of a priest in Nebraska, police now say the suspect had no prior connection with the priest. A 43-year-old man is awaiting trial on first-degree murder, burglary, and two felony weapons counts. He had a criminal past and now could face the death penalty. Father Stephen Gutzko was attacked at the rectory at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Fort Calhoun. Police initially said it was an attempted break-in. Memorial visitation for Father Gutzel will be held Sunday following a funeral Monday. Father Gutzel was 65 years old. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida says that he wrote a letter to the Vatican asking the Holy Father to do more to secure the release of a bishop being held in prison in Nicaragua. The, the worst thing that could happen to someone who's in captivity like that is to be forgotten and have nobody to talk about them. So um, I think the church is position to certainly do that. So um, continue to raise awareness and talk about it's important. Recently, the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Global Human Rights, chaired by Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey, held a hearing calling for the release of Bishop Rolando Alvarez. Pope Francis continues to denounce the imprisonment. The Supreme Court of Virginia has reinstated a case involving a high school teacher who was fired for refusing to use a transgender student's preferred pronouns. The teacher at West Point High filed a lawsuit. He cited his religious beliefs that each person's sex is biologically fixed. The case brought in 2018 was initially dismissed. Oh, we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including Naughty or Nice. We'll tell you about the stars of social media and which platforms kids should avoid. And going back to the beginning, we take you to the place of the very first nativity scene. season in full swing, the Parents Television and Media Council released its annual Naughty and Nice list. The aim of the list is to highlight media companies that highlight children and families and those who prioritize profit over child safety. And here to share more about the report is Melissa Henson, Vice President of the Parents Television and Media Council. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. This is such a great idea. Uh, can you share more 
about the genesis and purpose behind releasing these findings? Sure. Well, it uh, going into the holiday season, a lot of people are going to be making choices about smartphones, about um, um, digitally connected devices, about streaming services, maybe where they might be able to access some holiday entertainment. And so we just really wanted to put some information in front of parents to help inform those decisions. Yeah, it's a wonderful idea. All right, let's start off um, with a good list. What companies did the best job, do you think, of producing family-friendly content for 2023? Well, um, we put Apple TV Plus on our best list, on our nice list uh, this year, and that was the result of a study that the Parents Television Media Council conducted um, earlier this fall, where we looked at all of the top streaming services and how much family entertainment they actually offered. Um, and of the top streaming services, Apple TV Plus came in first. Nearly 25% of their original content is rated either G or PG, making it suitable for families. Also, it's now the home of Charlie Brown Christmas, which I know is beloved of generations of families. So um, that's where you're going to go to find that this year and probably for the foreseeable future. That's going to be the only home for, for the Charlie Brown specials. Um, and we also put Bent Key on our um, on our nice list. And this is a new um, uh, outlet, a new venue from Daily Wire, um, uh, an opportunity to sort of compete against Disney and some of these other mainstream media companies to provide content that um, supports the values that I think um, I hold and, and maybe a lot of your viewers hold as well. Um, so it's positive. It's wholesome. You don't have to worry about language. You don't have to worry about um, sexual content. You don't need to worry about uh, political messaging. It's just meant to be sweet, wholesome, uplifting family-friendly entertainment. We have maybe 30 seconds left or so, but really quickly, what about the naughty list? Yeah, top on our list is HBO and Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, uh, both for, for targeting kids with really harmful content. And Melissa, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, a letter from Christmas past, a heartwarming story of a promise between the late Pope Benedict XVI and baby Jesus. Plus... Witness a grand musical Christmas tradition in the nation's capital. Welcome back. The Vatican is offering an encouraging message to single mothers. It says work needs to be done in parts of the world where single mothers might face harsh judgment. In a letter yesterday, the Holy See also sent a message about single mothers receiving communion after going to confession, saying, quote, pastoral work should be done in the local church to make people understand that being a single mother does not prevent that person from accessing the Eucharist. Well, anyone looking to get into the Christmas spirit can find a great opportunity this weekend right in our nation's capital. The Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception will hold its annual Christmas choir concert on December 16th at 7 p.m. The event will feature beautiful Christmas songs sung by the Shrine's choir in the Crypt Church. The event is open to the public and it is free of charge. And here to tell us more about the concert is Dr. Peter Latana, Director of Music for the National Shrine and Conductor 
of the Basilica's Choir. Dr. Latana, great to have you on today. So for those who don't know, tell us about the meaning behind the concert and how important it is for the Shrine to host it every year. Well, it's it's important for us to host because it, in, in a sense, it's, it's uh, our gift. I think, you know, our, our choir is incredibly special um, and we feel just it's very important to share their talents, the great music, uh, and the spiritual concert that the uh, you know that that will be provided, sort of an opportunity outside the context of liturgy, um, for us to make beautiful music and have people enjoy that and think about the text and enjoy the be beautiful music, um, and get more in touch with Christmas and what it means for them. What about the choir itself? I mean, I'm sure a lot of preparation goes into putting on this concert. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, we have, I, I think, the, the finest singers in Washington, D.C., and they're all extremely talented. Um, so the actual preparation is just about a week's worth. Uh, so it's not that much when you consider the amount of music. Uh, but keep in mind that the choir sings uh, probably 75 times during the course of the year and probably goes through, you know, a over a thousand pieces of music. So we hire musicians who are highly skilled, highly trained, and have the ability to um, perform the music uh, quite readily with relatively little rehearsal. We have a little less than a minute left, though. Um, but quickly, for those who want to attend tomorrow, can you give us an idea of maybe what they can expect? Um, well, I, I think they should expect to be transported uh, for an hour from the uh, craziness of uh, life around Washington, D.C. or wherever they wherever they are, uh, mesmerized by the exceptional singing and the beautiful music, and I think drawn into the beauty of the Crypt Church, which is in a sense is the, 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 the spiritual soul, the spiritual heart of this uh, wonderful basilica. Uh, and just take a time to listen to beautiful music, hear the words, and think about uh, Christmas. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. We really appreciate it. Merry Christmas and God bless you. Thank you. Well, the tradition of the nativity scene began in a small town in central Italy 800 years ago. EWTN Vatican News correspondent Colin Flynn went to the place where it all began. Father Michael, we're here in the beautiful town of Greccio, and you just celebrated Christmas Mass in here, but it's not Christmas yet. Not yet. We're still in Advent, but I did celebrate Christmas Mass because we're right next to the cave of Greccio where St. Francis had the first nativity scene. So this church has the privilege to celebrate the Christmas liturgy every day of the, of the year. year. Isn't that amazing? And we'll walk down because yes. this is just a beautiful spot and the, the view is incredible. Well, I can understand why St. Francis was so inspired. He found Bethlehem here in this town and he wanted everyone to experience that. Yeah, explain that to me because, of course, St. Francis of Assisi, what brought him to Greccio? Well, this lovely town reminded him so much of Bethlehem that he thought that we needed to represent the nativity scene. So, he brought in other actors, including the Franciscan friars and even animals like the ox and the donkey into the manger scene so that everyone could relive that beautiful experience of the first Bethlehem. But it was very important that that Bethlehem experience was also connected to the mass. And so that's why it's so fitting that we celebrate the Christmas mass, because in every mass, the bread of life comes to us. Bethlehem means the house of bread. The manger is a place of feeding. What do we do at Mass? We feed on the bread of life. 
That is incredible. And he had been to the Holy Land. Yes. And he wanted to recreate for people that moment in time and illustrate to them. This is before, of course, like uh, photographs and the internet and everything. So he wanted to show them as best he could and make it real for them that this is how it would have happened. So he called in his brother Friars. Right. Uh, He He made sure the mayor was on board because he needed support. He needed help because no one had really done anything like this before. So he needed some assistance. And they acted it out like a play. Yes, it was tremendous. It was so engaging. And, of course, that inspired other people to eventually do the same or to at least make an artistic representation for it, which is why we still set up the manger scenes in our houses today. Isn't that amazing that we do it all over the world in all different cultures? It's part of the Christmas celebration, that nativity scene. And yet it all started right here in this tiny, simple cave. 800 years ago where we're standing. It's incredible, isn't it? It's very moving. And now, because of the 800th celebration, of course, we have the nativity scene in St. Peter's Square at the Vatican in Rome has come from the town of Greccio itself. Yes, and the art in this beautiful nativity scene in St. Peter's Square is based upon this simple, humble little cave in this town of Greccio. It's, It's really amazing to see how such a simple devotion touch the hearts of faithful around the world to the point where now in the center of the church, this is our inspiration. Father Michael Baggett, thank you very much. Finally tonight, the late Pope Benedict XVI wrote a lot about Jesus. It was a practice the Pope Emeritus began at a very young age. As a seven-year-old in 1934, little Joseph Ratzinger wrote a Christmas letter to the child Jesus. He said the birth of Christ would bring joy to children. And for a gift, he asked for a green chasuble to wear for Mass. The future Pope Benedict ended the letter by saying, quote, I will always be good. The letter was found in 2012 during a restoration of his childhood home. His longtime secretary said when Pope Benedict saw the letter again, it made him very happy. That's beautiful. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.